Well, if you'll turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 19, Matthew chapter 19, we're really going to be dealing with two very difficult topics tonight. And uh, the first of the two talks will be longer than the second. Um, the complexities are so much greater in the first subject uh, on the subject of divorce and particularly on the subject of remarriage which will hang in the background rather than be dealt with in the foreground but it will be there all the time irritating. Matthew 19, now when Jesus had finished these sayings he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So they're no longer two, but one flesh. And what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? And he said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality and marries another, commits adultery. The disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry. But he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. In this talk, I feel like Barak, being challenged by the judge Deborah to go and fight the enemy Sisera. And my Deborah was a woman on the Moore College staff called named name Jane Tua, who invited me to speak on this subject earlier this year, though I had been avoiding speaking on it for the last 40 years. The question of divorce and remarriage are really the pointy end of the issues of marriage and singleness. And like Barak of old, I was fearful of entering the battle, but very keen for Deborah's assistance, though I got her insistence. We need to fight, not fight each other, we need to fight together. We need the discussion to work out with each other what the scripture says and what it doesn't say and how we best serve God's people by teaching and modelling what God is saying to us in his word. Avoidance, like Barak of old, is not good and it's not good for God's people when his leaders are cowardly. Though the Sisera of divorce and remarriage is a fearful nightmare of a, su of a subject to take on and to battle with. But in our time in history, we cannot avoid it any longer. When so many people have been caught up in the contagion, 
in what is now, I take it, a tidal wave of divorce in our society of Australia and increasingly in your society of Singapore. In the early 1970s in Australia, our government brought in no-fault divorce laws. It's simple really in Australia, once you have been separated for 12 months, you can have a divorce just by filling in the paperwork. The other party, your spouse, cannot stop it happening. It is just a semi-automatic process. There is no reason to be given for the divorce other than you've been separated for 12 months and are entitled to it. In so doing, the government rewrote the whole understanding of marriage and family life. Now, I understand your laws and marriage laws are different. I tried to search them out and I thought, no, my life is too short. <laughs> Especially when you take into account Muslim marriage laws as well as your civil marriage. It's too complicated for an Australian. You'll just have to translate. I've told you ours. They're simple and dreadful. Yours are not so simple and not so dreadful, but heading in the same direction. If we were in Australia tonight with a room as many as this, there would not be a person unaffected by divorce, by divorce and by remarriage. The Singapore statistics I examined briefly are behind Australia in this trend, just as Australia is behind America. But the trend is heading in the same direction, that is the breakdown of family structures such that no family in Australia is now unaffected by divorce. It may not be your marriage, the majority is not their marriage, but the marriage of their children or the marriage of their parents or their brothers or their sisters. And divorce is not something that only affects the couple. It affects the whole family. When it first hit in Sydney, Christians through the 1980s tried to think through the issue, but our thinking, I believe, failed. We were still thinking in terms of a Christianized culture, supporting, almost by default, our Christian ideas. And the church was trying to work out the rules and the laws for our community who generally accepted us, who generally came to us for weddings. Most weddings at that time were conducted by churches. And so we, now with the new divorce laws, were trying to work out new rules and regulations for our church. And how our church would run weddings for non-Christians, which we'd been doing since the uh, founding of the Australian community. But now, today, these many 40 or so years later, fewer and fewer are coming to us for weddings. Indeed, fewer are coming for weddings at all. 60% of those who are married cohabit before they're married. And many, like our ex-Prime Minister that I spoke of last night, don't bother getting married, they just cohabit. However, all this sadly opens up a new day of evangelistic opportunity for Christians in the divorce ministry. But barracks like me have not risen to the challenge 
for fear of getting involved in the difficulty of the remarriage of divorcees, in possible contravention to Jesus' words. For you'll see there in chapter 19, verse 9, I say, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. So how can I be involved in marrying people if I'm encouraging them to commit adultery? Divorcees are people going through terrible pain and dislocation. It doesn't happen in a moment. Even with the quickie divorces we've got, it's years of property settlement and fighting over the, the children and it goes on and on. And they are open to new, hear new things of the gospel message of forgiveness and of grace and of a fresh start and a new creation. But sadly, they only hear our message of breaking the law of God, of being unacceptable because they are divorced, of having failed to keep their marriage vows, and so having failed, failed God, failed each other, failed themselves. And so divorcees leave church and avoid Christian contact. And we are not taking up the opportunity of ministering the gospel to them. We want to help and need guidance in this area to enter into the battle. We need the help and guidance of Christians to think about this. In the difficulties of your own family, are you going to the weddings? Second half tonight, will you go to your brother's wedding if your brother is in a homosexual marriage? Or would you not attend it? Would you stay away from it? It's in the difficulties of our church. Who, whose marriages will we bless? And whose would we say, no, we cannot be involved in your marriage? And in the difficulties within our society. Because society is built on family units. And if family units are constructed on a different basis, how will our society function? And what should we say or not say to the society around us? I don't pretend or claim to have all the answers. But I really can't allow that to stop me from saying what I do know and what I don't know and being open to others to find better answers for the ways forward. So let me tell you about my problems to help you understand why for 40 years I really haven't been speaking on the subject. They're twofold. One, the practicalities of Christian ministry, and two, the difficulties in understanding the scriptures are right. So firstly, the practicalities of Christian ministry. Under point two, A, the practicalities of Christian ministry. See, marriage is public. Divorce is usually private. I've often wanted to withdraw from being involved in weddings as a way of avoiding having to make the judgment about other people's lives. However, marriage can't be avoided like that. It's a public concern. In fact, this is part of the problem of the cohabitants. They don't go public and seek everybody's blessing and goodwill as they set up home together. It's part of our society's problems that de facto marriages make relationships private 
and the media and pornography make sexuality and divorce public. So participating in a wedding is giving approval and blessing to the union, to the marriage, which therefore involves Christians making judgments about whether it is right to marry and to remarry. We ask the couple if they know any reason that they cannot be married and assure them that if they do not confess it now, then they're not really married. For our wedding announcement that God has made them one, made them man and wife, is not valid if there is some reason not to marry, that they fail to confess. For example, incest or bigamy. If you're already married, then though I may conduct your wedding service, at the end of it, you're still not married to the person that you have now given your promises to because you're already married to somebody else. We also ask the congregation whether they know any reason why this couple cannot be joined together in holy matrimony. Never have I any, ever had anybody stand up and say yes at that point. Though we all giggle and laugh at it because it was so preposterous in a previous day, it's not preposterous and it's not laughable. For we may want to say, yes, that couple should not marry because it would be wrong for them to be married. It is not according to God's way and God's law. Jesus warned that some marriages were just simply adultery, that we're legalising, we're sanitising our sinfulness. Paul challenges the Christians in Corinth, in 1 Corinthians 5, about judging others in the world and judging others in the church. And the, the Corinthians are all confused, you see, because they're making judgments about the world for which Paul says, you can't withdraw from adulterers in the world, otherwise you've got to withdraw from the world. But at the same time, they are making the gross error in the case of sexual immorality within the church, which they are tolerating. So they're tolerating immorality in the church and judging the world for its immorality. They've got it wrong both ways. But then, if we're going to conduct public weddings as a church, weddings of people from the world, can we do that without making judgments? Or should we do that without making judgments? I left Moore College in 1970. Hands up those of you who were still around in 1970. You see, they can't even get their hands up anymore. They're so old, it's very hard to lift their hands, you see. Hands up those who weren't born in 1970. Yes, up go the hands. Yes, yes. Most of you, okay. Well, I'd finished college then, the age of two. I was a very clever student, really, quite advanced and way ahead of my times. And as a young man, had sorted out all the problems of life and became the assistant minister in a wonderful suburb called Manly, where I was rostered on wedding duties every second Saturday. Sometimes there were three weddings. Remember, there were no other forms of weddings, all church weddings in those days. So the people came for weddings to our old building, which was right in the middle of Manly, which is a beautiful seaside suburb of Sydney. And 
There'd be three weddings on a Saturday afternoon, one after another, and I soon learnt that people's lives were more mixed up than anything I had ever thought of. For example, would I marry a believer to an unbeliever? Well, of course not. But then, what if they were living together and one got converted and the other didn't? What of the children that they had together? What should they do now? Should they separate, as in the days of Ezra? And if they separated, what would become of the children? Should they continue to live in a de facto relationship? Or, or would that be worse? Or should I say, well, look, go to the registry office and, and get married there in the post office system that used to be around. But does that say I don't approve of their marriage, but they can still be married? Or should I say, no, look, come and get married in the church and I'm going to mismatch a believer with an unbeliever and how will I be able to stand up at the youth fellowship next Friday night and say, stop going out with unbelievers, you can't marry an unbeliever when I just married one last Saturday. I continue to be confronted with life situations that are more complicated and complex than my imagination let alone the systems that I had worked out to cater for every situation, which didn't exist. In any divorce, it is said that there are two sides to the story. But sometimes I've discovered that's not true. Sometimes both sides tell exactly the same story. Sometimes people just fail to keep their promises and get caught in crass sinfulness. However, Usually, it is ten times more complicated than, and morally confusing than it first appears. I'm going to give you, if I can do it quickly, a few case studies. I've changed all the names, all the addresses, all the details, uh, because I know it goes into the world web, and so people immediately think that uh, I've told secrets about them. And so if you're listening to this, none of, you, none of these cases are here living in Singapore, so I know that's none of you guys. Uh, but if you're listening to this on the web, uh, it's not you. <laughs> take up, uh, they're fairly standard. Take up an adulterous relationship, take a man who leaves his wife, take up an adulterous relationship with his secretary. Now that sounds a complete open and shut simple case of sinfulness, doesn't it? Leaving aside for a moment whether you believe the scripture teaches that it would be right or wrong to marry in the innocent party of an adultery case, your sympathy will be drawn to her. However, when you talk to him and discover the years of abuse, tyranny and domestic violence that he has experienced at the hands of his wife, you can have some understanding why he was so attracted to the gentle secretary who understandingly cared for him each day at the office. If we change the gender around, if, if the male-female person is, is in a different situation, then our sympathies alter. You see, the abused, bashed wife quite rightly has our sympathy. But we don't think of the abused and bashed husband. And when we do think of him, it doesn't arouse the same level of sympathy as it does for the wife. This poor, emasculated man that I'm thinking of could find no sympathy 
nor even any opportunity to express his problems, except with the, in except with the confines of his office secretary, who knew nobody else and was not part of his social scene. When the self-righteous wife was challenged about her domestic tyranny, she agreed that his story was substantially true. She was a monster at home. Now, I'm not in this account for a moment suggesting, agreeing or approving or accepting his adulterous solution to his problems. I think that the adultery was a disastrous, godless, sinful mistake. But the simple moral judgment of his action being wrong and her being all in the right, it doesn't do justice to the collapse of this marriage. A second case, the case of a man who divorces his wife because of her adulterous fling and claimed the right to marry somebody else. The fact that he did it in absolute minimum time and that he married an old girlfriend that he used to go out with before he was married made one suspicious. When talking to his first wife about the collapse of her marriage and her adulterous fling, another story emerged. She was desperately unhappy wife whose husband had emotionally and sexually walked out of the marriage several years beforehand. Her pleading with him fell on deaf ears. He refused to go to any marriage counselling or to take any notice of her attempts to save their marriage. In a foolish attempt to force the issue with him, she hooked up on a one-night stand and then came home and told him, threw it in his face, in the hope that that would finally force him to face up to their marital difficulties and go to counselling. His response was chilling. I have wanted to divorce you for years, but had no grounds for remarriage, but your adultery means that I can now marry the woman I want to. And so he walked out on her. See, human sinfulness is more devious and complicated than simple behavioural errors. What she did was wrong, but strangely understandable and forgivable. What he did appeared right on some understanding of the New Testament, but was, in my view, profoundly wrong and pharisaic in reading the passage of Scripture, which was ironically anti-pharisaic. He had promised to love her as Christ loved the church, but he failed completely to love her, let alone as Christ loved the church. Mercifully, mercifully for all of us, Christ loves us better than that. Case number three. A man who was converted, having spent his years in and out of sexual relationships with women. He didn't marry any of them, and so to marry now would not mean a remarriage, because he'd never been married. He just slept around a lot. Yet on the other hand, he was no virgin, his unmarried state was a symbol, actually, of his sinfulness, his disregard of the women he used and he effectively abused. If he had married, we would say that he cannot now remarry. But because he was so thoroughly degenerate as not to marry in the first place, it's all right for him to marry. 
Well, that becomes slightly ridiculous, doesn't it? At this point, you think the law is an ass. I won't ask the lawyers to put up their hands. Friday night, you've knocked off. But it is like that. You may say, it's a classic case of the Duke and Duchess of York, where it was the situation she'd lived with several men beforehand, but she'd never married any of them. So therefore, we could have a church wedding. If she'd married any of them, well then, we couldn't have a church wedding because that would be adultery. You see how difficult you start to get into these legal situations and definitions. Fourthly, another kind of case that has given me some difficulty is when people speak of their ex-spouse as an unbeliever and claim the so-called Pauline privilege, that the unbeliever has left me, therefore I'm now free to marry in 1 Corinthians 7. I don't know the previous spouse, and so it's very easy to accept what has been told me. And it's very hard to evaluate the truth of what's been told to me. But what do you do when a couple marries as Christians, then one spouse leaves, renouncing Christianity as they go, only to claim, reclaim their Christian faith later on after the divorce and after they've remarried? Now, I'm not suggesting that this was an intentional deception. They did marry as Christians, and when their marriage fell apart, their confidence and faith in God underwent a great shaking. Some years later, when they had recovered to some extent and their life sorted itself out again, they remembered their Christian commitment, repented and returned to Christian fellowship. But do we remarry them? Is it right to do so? That is but the tip of the iceberg of the problems of a minister in public ministry on this subject. And you can see why I don't like talking about it publicly. Because almost anything I say, you can come up to me and say, but I've got this case where, and it will be more difficult than I have thought of. Part of the difficulty of the issue of remarriage is that marriage is made up of two parties and it's more than possible for one party to fall, fail in their obligations, thus depriving the other part person of marital and family life. There's a strange and growing trend amongst youthful generation in Australia of people who decide shortly after the marriage that they don't want to be married after all. It's not that they don't want to be married to the particular spouse, it's just they don't want the responsibility of marriage and of parenthood. Whereas many people in the community are unwilling to undertake the commitment of marriage. These people have undertaken that commitment but then realised it was a mistake and they'd rather live in the freedom of individualism. Part of the tidal wave characteristic of divorce and widespread divorce is that the children of divorcees not only have a higher rate of divorce themselves but a far greater reticence about making the commitment of marriage. And so it, it's not that this couple divorces and that's all it is. It spreads through generations. 
on these occasions when people have so lost confidence in marriage itself, it's not a matter of fault of the spouse who they're leaving behind or they're unwilling to be committed to. There's no complaint about the spouse. It's the rejection of the institution of marriage itself which has become the issue. They don't want to be parents or to be confined in a relationship which will govern the rest of their life's decisions. Now, while from a Christian's perspective, this view of life is a very sad expression of people's rebellion against God, yet from the perspective of the spouse, who has been left behind, it's a judgment upon them which appears to have no end. They have the terrible sense of failure to provide satisfactorily for their spouse, the inevitable sense that somehow it's their fault, the pity, the questioning, if not the condemnation of the community that somehow they've contributed to this divorce, and now the spectre of living the rest of their lives without being married or having children, even though that was their, that was their desire when they got married, that was their expectation in getting married, and it wasn't their fault that the marriage collapsed. Where is the justice in that? This seems hardly just, in fact, plainly unjust. But what justice can the Christian message on marriage, divorce and remarriage bring to them? Or is this an issue and an area of life in which we must not expect justice and that we should never be offering it or providing it or promising it to people? Now, these pastoral problems, and I, I really have just skimmed the surface to kind of arouse you to what any pastor is going through in church life today. These pastoral problems are added to by the difficulties in understanding the scriptures are right. So I move to the second area of problem, the difficulties in understanding the scriptures. And here I want to indicate my suspicions. And you might say, well, Philip, you're a very suspicious character. And I am. One, I am suspicious about the academic Christian studies experts who promise certainty but only deliver confusion. Their methodology has failed. Whatever position you want to take on remarriage of divorcees, I can find a reputable scholar who will support you. I have before me the range of my teachers from laxists, anything goes, to rigorists, no one can do it at all, to all kinds of steps between it, indissolubilists, willfulists, legalists, gracists, which are several words I've made up. <laughs> Neologisms, if you really want to know what they're called. I don't doubt that these teachers are concerned to teach God's word aright. I'm not talking about liberal scholars who think God's word is wrong, even if they think it's God's word at all. And I'm not talking about Catholic scholars who are only reading the Bible to support Catholic views. I'm talking about genuine evangelical Bible-believing scholars who seem unable to agree on the details of marriage, divorce, and in particular, remarriage. We do not want rabbis to produce a kind of Christian Mishnah a set of rules and regulations by which we can contrast different rabbis, rabbi so-and-so says this, rabbi so-and-so says that, and who can look at different situations and apply the text of scriptures to a particular marital situation we're facing. 
That is what Jesus liberated us from. And that is where Christian scholarship is taking us back. My second suspicion, I have a deep suspicion about scholarly arguments when the end result seems to reverse the apparently black and white teaching of scripture into something that is in agreement with the cultural mood and movements of our day. Let me illustrate this from a different subject, though related. Uh, last year, was it? I think it was last year. In about the same month, three books came out at the same time on the subject of women preaching. All arguing for why we are not to apply the explicit teaching of scripture to this issue. All of them arguing that we should adopt the practice and belief of our world's culture rather than the explicit teaching of scripture. And the three books use completely different reasons to come to the same conclusion. Contradictory reasons. If one's right, the other's wrong kind of reasons. My cynicism, my scepticism rings warning bells to me that cleverness is standing in the way of truth. For you can cleverly twist words any way you want to to prove anything you want to. And so when you suddenly are able to make black say white, and when somebody else does it with a different set of reasons and somebody else does it with a different set of reasons, you've got to start saying, hang on, hang on, hang on. Black means black. It doesn't mean white. Well, it's the same on the subject of marriage and divorce and remarriage. I'm suspicious when people are able to take a verse of scripture and make it say the exact reverse of what it appears to be saying. I'm suspicious. Thirdly, I also have deep suspicion about the scholarly arguments that depend upon historical background. Now, naturally, there is a place for understanding the history, language and culture of the times in which the scriptures were written. It's also important, apologetically and evangelistically, to be able to show that we are dealing not just with literature, but with history, with events that happened in time and space and place. And that what is said in the scripture is consistent with our knowledge of the world. However, our knowledge of that world is often not as precise and as accurate as the scriptures we're reading. Furthermore, our knowledge of that world comes from people who disagree with the scripture's view of life. Philo, Josephus were Jewish writers. They may tell us things about Jewish life, but they do so from the perspective that is contrary to the New Testament view of Jewish life. And if the Bible is right, Philo and Josephus were wrong about the way to live. And so some people will say, well, Josephus explains what prophecy is. But what Jesus says is quite contrary to what Josephus says. But if Josephus says this, then people will reinterpret Jesus to fit in with Josephus. But if Jesus wanted to be Josephus, he would have been. He wasn't. And he contradicted that kind of Pharisaic mindset. Gaining the situation in life in which a document was written helps enormously in understanding the meaning of the text. It provides us with another further part of the context. However, ascribing their historical context 
from outside the documents, especially the historical context of whose certainty we're not sure, is a very uncertain way of reading the Bible. What's this got to do with this subject? Well, you see, there was a great fight in the first century, we are told, between the, the school of Rabbi Shammai and the school of, of Hillel about the meaning of divorce and remarriage. But, my friends, unless it is being explicitly referred to in the New Testament, we cannot be sure that the comments that Jesus is making were consciously delivered in respect to those schools. It's possible, though presumably unlikely, that either Jesus or the Gospel writers, or even those who asked Jesus the question in order to test him, didn't know anything about Shammai and Hillel. Unless they say it's about them, it's presumptuous for us to read it in. Indeed, I'll give you a reason for thinking in Matthew 19 it wasn't about that conspute. A little later. Fourth problem, I also am suspicious of using our modern language and concepts that assume the outcome. So people talk about the death of a marriage or talk about becoming kindred by marriage or even using the word divorce itself. You see, in modern English, the word divorce means a legal end to a marriage that frees the parties to marry again. That is, there is a difference in modern English between being separate and being divorced. The person who's separate is not free to remarry, but the person who's divorced is free to be married. So as soon as you use the word divorce, you are assuming that it is legally right to remarry. Remarriage is built into the very word divorce. And so to translate the Greek and Hebrew into the word divorce assumes in, to the modern reader the right to remarry. But you have assumed the very solution to the problem you're investigating. Especially this is significant when you realise that there's not one word but half a dozen different words that are translated by the word divorce in English. And each of these words, none of them have anything to do with remarriage. They are words about putting away or driving out or releasing or separating. None of which then answers the question as to whether you are able to move on to another party or able to reunite with the party that you've separated from. They're not those kinds of words. And so I don't know anywhere in the text of Scripture where it is ever right to translate the word divorce as divorce in the modern English sense of the word. All this confusion doesn't help sinful people who want God to say what we want to hear. It's one of the problems of teaching on the subject that the Pharisee in us all wants to hear the law, the rules, the regulations in order to find the loopholes the exclusion clauses, the special cases that will excuse our behaviour. I, I don't know whether this is true here at all, but at home, there are a lot of tax lawyers. And the art and function of a tax lawyer is to help people not pay taxes. 
You don't go to a tax lawyer to find out how to pay more tax. You go to the tax lawyer to find the loophole, to find the ways of minimising tax. If you find one that teaches you how to avoid tax, he's a criminal, don't have anything to do with you. But you go to ones who help you minimise tax. So some of the cleverest people in Australia are being employed in order to find ways to avoid the government receiving the monies of the people in order to do good for the community. Well, you might be here tonight, mind you. I'll consult with you later. So, the aim always of going to that kind of lawyer is finding the loop. Now, that's exactly what Pharisaism is about. That captures Pharisaism. The Pharisees were experts in the law, not in order to keep the law, but in order to find ways of avoiding keeping the law. The New Testament is written by and for those engaged in the world mission, telling of the hope of heaven by which we come to faith and love through the death and resurrection of our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ, who taught us that by his resurrection he was going to pour his spirit into us to move us so that we will want to keep the law, which is why Jesus is so anti-Pharisaic. Because law-keeping for Jesus is a heart movement of the Spirit, wanting us to find how to maximise the keeping of the law, not how to minimise the keeping of the law. You've heard it said of old, you shall not murder. I say to you, shall not hate your brother. You see, he's maximising the law, not minimum. The Pharisee would say, murder, murder, well, that's interesting. Some killing is all right, isn't it? It's all right to kill the vegetables, it's all right to kill the animals, it's all right to kill people in war, it's all right to kill. And so let's, let's work out when murder would be murder. I mean, murder's not manslaughter, is it? So murder is only... So you define down murder narrowly and narrowly until you can reach a point where... Well, no one really does it. You didn't mean to. It was all an accident. But that, you see, the Pharisee is the opposite of Jesus. Jesus is saying, that commandment you shall not kill means don't hate your brother. Because then you've already murdered in your heart. And so forth. See, the true position of the Christian reader is on his knees in prayerful obedience. That is the only position from which you can ever understand the scriptures are right. Now, just in case you have misunderstood because we don't know each other well enough, let me assure you, I believe in the scholarship of New Testament and Old Testament of, of scholarship in learning. I'm a great advocate of especially our ministers having proper full-time education in the Word of God and proper scholarly uh, education. I just want you to understand that the person who has been touched by the Spirit of God to be obedient to the Word of God knows more about God than the person whose head is full of information and his heart is still Pharisaic. That's, so what we want is our ministers to have hearts that are touched by the Spirit of God, to be obedient to the Word of God, and their heads 
full of the information. It's the both end, not the either or. But if you've got to go for either or, go for the heart. Because the man whose head's full and his heart's away is called Satan. Now, let's then ourselves humbly come to the Bible text. That's a massive long introduction before we've looked at what the Bible says. <laughs> and a massive long introduction about how you shouldn't listen to anything else but the Bible. And we haven't done it. So, let's look at it. We mustn't start with our question about remarriage, for it may or may not be answered in the text. You've got to start with the text itself in front of us. And the one I'd start with is the one we were looking at last night, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, if you had just turned back there. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, because that's the text that talks about marriage and separation and the possibilities of remarriage. But to understand 1 Corinthians 7, you've got to read it in the context of 1 Corinthians. In its context, chapters 5 and 6 are about sexual immorality of the Christians. And chapter 7 commences with a Corinthians question about Paul's advice in chapters 5 and 6 about what to do with sexual immorality in the church. That is, the context we are in is a context of a mission field when people have been recently called into the kingdom of God by the gospel. And when you're in a context of a mission field with people converted recently, there are two things that you have. One, the need to fix the crazy mixed up world in which they are called. And two, the need to understand the new life in Christ's kingdom. You've got to fix up the crazy mixed up world because they've got such relational mess in their lives sexual immorality and inappropriate relationships, that that hasn't changed now they've been converted. They've come to know Jesus Christ as Lord and, well, they've been living with this person for the last three years and they've had children from somebody else four years beforehand. And what do they do now? You've got to fix up the mess that people get their lives in. They've been purchased at the price of the Lord Jesus Christ and now must serve him with their bodies. This makes union with prostitutes no longer possible. Professing faith in Christ while living in sexual immorality, living with your father's wife in chapter 5, living with prostitutes in chapter 6, they're impossibilities. You can't keep going like that. However, what's the solution? The solution is not to see sex is always only ever bad. The solution is not ascetic withdrawal from all physical sexual activity. It's rather to express our holiness by avoiding our porneia, our fornication, our sexual immorality. But to do so by appropriate sexual activity within marriage. Here's a problem though for our translators, because our translators, dear brothers and sisters that they are, live in an ivory, ca ivory castle. And they actually are not on the mission field and therefore they don't realise what was happening in Corinth. And so they put words in that aren't there. It's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality... The word temptation is not there. It's not in the Greek. It's, and it's not sexual immorality, it's sexual immoralities, plural. It's fornications. So 
It really is saying, but because of sexual immoralities, a man should have a wife. It's better to marry, as he goes on to say, than to burn. The opening paragraph of this passage is not about marriage, but about sex inside marriage. And the question of whether to marry or not comes after verse 25 on the issue of the virgins, as I told you last night. The old NIV was completely wrong in its translation of verse 1, for it used to say it's good for a man not to marry. Uh, the 2011 version has corrected that. I don't know whether you've got one of either version in front of you, but it really is saying it's good for a man not to touch a woman. It's good for a man not to have sexual relationships with a wife. And that's the question the Corinthians are asking Paul, and Paul is saying, no, your answer is wrong, your perception is wrong. The ascetic answer of the Corinthians to sexual immorality is totally rejected by Paul in this. He's saying that the husband and the wife should enjoy each other's sexual lives. But the wife, and that's a lovely mutual passage here, the wife doesn't have authority over her own body, which sounds very chauvinistic, until you read the second half. The, the likewise, the husband doesn't have authority over his own body. We are given to each other to look after each other's physical and sexual needs. And so while Paul may make concession to sexual abstinence for a particular reason, like prayer, it's only for a short time, not permanently. The basic understanding of marriage is the husband and wife will serve each other sexually and provide no place for Satan's temptations. The word is there, down in verse 5. The this of verse 6, now as a concession, not a command, I say this. The word this should come at the beginning of that sentence, because that's his emphatic place. And that's referring to the concession of abstinence. He's saying this abstinence concession, I tell you this, is, it's really a concession, it's not a command. You don't have to have abstinence, you do have to have sex. A sexless marriage is not a Christian marriage. That's, that's the character of it. The, the, the teaching is very clear here. There's nothing, the problem's not sex. The problem is the relationship, the context in which we exercise it. That can be the problem. But it's not sex itself. Paul wishes for people is clearly differentiated from his commands. He keeps saying, this I have a word for the Lord, this I don't have a word, this is my command for all the church, this is my wish for you, you may love. That's all the way through this passage. He's very clear as to the limits of his knowledge of God's will for people's lives. His wish will come late, clear later in the chapter as we realise his rule for the people to stay as they are. His gift is singleness theirs of marriage, each a gift of God to be used appropriately. But what are the difficult situations? He then addresses particular groups of people, the unmarried, widows, the married Christians, the mixed marriage Christians. See, the Corinthians are a mission field. They've just become Christians. And there's all kinds of people in a congregation of new Christians. 
And so the Corinthians also raised the question of virgins marrying and, and he returns to the widows at the end of the chapter. Now one reason for speaking of a widow the second time may be that in verse 8 he is dealing with or anticipating in verse 9 those whose sexual past life has continued into the present. They have become Christians but they are living in sexual immorality. The basic principle is to remain as Paul does. However, if they're already sinning, you don't remain sinning. And it's better to go ahead and get married and clean up the mess rather than to burn with shame or with the punishment of God. As I mentioned to you last night, the mistranslation of verse 9 doesn't help us here. The word cannot is not there in the text. It's if they are not exercising self-control. It's nothing theoretical. It's all too real and practical. It's the problem of Christians caught in sexual sinfulness. What should we do about it? Notice that with passion is not in the text either. That's an additional gloss to help modern readers and fails for it removes the more likely meaning of burn, that is with shame or with judgment. Now, I think it's got to do again with the, the academy doing translations rather than pastors in evangelistic mission fields doing them. Because I don't think they've ever come across what most of us in evangelistic churches come across all the time. We see people converted and we see lives that are really mixed up. Uh, uh, I, I've had two couples of, I can think of just straight off the top of my head, both of whom had multiple marriages prior to their conversion and one of them uh, was living together uh, no both of them were living together at the time that they were married at the time they were converted and they didn't get converted simultaneously either one got the husband got converted or the man did and then a year later the woman did so you've got the Christian and the non-Christian living together they've got his children her children and their children that's the reality of a modern Sydney convert. So what do you do now? Which, which bit do you clean up in what order? That's, that's what was Corinth. That's what Paul's dealing with here. It's that kind of muddled mess that people's lives are in and that you've got to sort out. And he's saying, well, if they're in sexual immorality, it's better they get married because at least we can be in holiness in the marriage context. The advice to those already caught in a sexual relationship without being married is just to marry. But notice we're not talking here about virgins. We're not talking about young girls or boys who have been raised up in Christian life and family, who are betrothed to one another. We're talking of people who are unmarried, possibly divorced, possibly widowed, converted but still in sexual relationships. Well, when I got ordained and when I grew up, most of the people were the virgins of the second half of chapter 7. Nowadays, most of the people are the immoral decadence of the first half of chapter 7. And so what we do and what we used to do and what we can do now, it's all shifting around and it's not so simple. We don't take into account enough the Song of Songs refrain about not awaking love before time. 
Our society is profoundly sexualizing young girls and arousing love as early as possible and therefore creating a nightmare situation in our society. And likewise, we don't take seriously enough the advice of Paul to the young widows in 1 Timothy 5 about their need to remarry. So having sexually awakened young girls before time, we then find that we have sexualized young women who are dissatisfied and unhappy and find it very difficult to live in chastity and in purity. So Paul then turns to the married, another group, in verse 10. What do we do to those who are married and who are converted? And he commands them, because he doesn't have to give his ideas here, he has a word of Jesus on this subject. Do not divorce. That is really, the Greek says, do not separate. But if you do separate, remain separate or be reconciled to each other. There's no third party to be included. If you can't live with each other, live separately. If you can't live separately, get back together. There's your choice. Some feel as if the concession to the possibility undermines the strong command of the Lord. But it's like 1 John chapter 2, where John says, Don't sin. But if anyone does, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ. But he's saying, don't separate. But if anyone does, live separately. It's not what we're supposed to do, though, for the man who separates from his wife is sinning. For he is committed to laying down his life for his wife, not walking out on her. And the woman is not to leave her husband, for she has committed herself to submit herself to her husband. So she shouldn't be walking out. However, there are situations in which I've encouraged temporary separation. Very dangerous when Jesus says, those whom God puts together, let no man separate. But when there is physical violence, when there is the criminal behaviour of grievous bodily harm, a temporary separation is what is necessary so that somebody can learn, usually the male, anger management. Because a marriage without anger management is a marriage in big difficulty and nobody has the right to be physically violent to anybody, lest of all the person they're laying down their life in order to serve and to save. And so there comes a point at which you will do it. But the separation is so as to help him, help him with his anger management, help him wake up to himself that he can't keep on doing this and living this way, so as to get him to counselling, so as to improve his character and life, so that they can be reunited again and look after their children together. It's not separated in order to go your own way, and it's not separated in order to find another kind of man who would not do such a thing to you. It's separated so as to be of benefit to your one that you are committed to. Some, however, the solution of separating is singleness or reconciliation. There's no place of moving to another party for Christians. 
We have no word from God that it is clear for us that we can leave this partner, this spouse, and move to another. Then he turns to the next problem. What do you do with those who are married to unbelievers? Again, if you're in the mission field with the church, this is a real problem. Any number of women, mainly, I've seen converted and their husbands haven't been. Sometimes I've seen husbands converted and their wives haven't been. How long do you keep staying together? Is this a ground for separation? Do you continue to have sex with someone who is not a believer? Well, sex inside marriage never defiles you. Uh, that's not our question, by the way. I, I've rarely met up with Christians who have worried about being defiled by sex with an unbeliever. But it's a very Jewish question. For touching an unbeliever was enough to make a Jewish person defiled. Even greeting them in the streets was enough to make you defiled. Shaking their hands was enough to make you defiled. Well, having sex with them would certainly make you defiled. It's a very real question for people who come from that cultural context. It may not be your question, but it's a real question. What Paul's advice is, and I'm now talking of verses 10 following, verse 12 following, what Paul's advice is, you should not initiate the split. You do not have to remain with the partner if the partner refuses to continue with you. But you don't initiate the split. And you do not worry about the defilement, for in fact... The partner will be blessed by you rather than you being defiled by your, by your spouse. Otherwise your children wouldn't be holy as they are. But if your spouse will not stay with you, you shouldn't hang on to them in the hope that they may be converted. A little hard to know, verse 16, whether it thinks they may or may not. But either way, you don't enslave yourself to somebody who is going to walk out on you because of this. It's very real, friends. One of my dear friends was converted. He was a member of AA. He'd been an alcoholic for many, many years. He was actually my insurance salesman. And that's where I first met him. Uh, and I discussed eternal assurance and he discussed earthly insurance. And uh, we had a good time together. He was a very nice man, but he was a terrible alcoholic. The son of an alcoholic. Uh, and uh, uh, he had lived as a very bad man frankly, and uh, through AA he uh, uh, gave up the grog and uh, moved into, um, into recovery. He became fanatic, he went to AA meetings ten times a week uh, in order to maintain his recovery, but he, he did give up. And then through that process of getting his brain straight and now actually facing the truth, he found Christ and found conversion. He went home and told his wife, very excited. She basically said, I've lived with you bashing me and bashing the kids. I've lived with you drunk and ruining our finances. I've lived with you losing jobs because of your alcohol addiction. I've lived with you becoming a fanatic AA person who goes on about it all day and night. But I'm blowed if I'm going to live with you as a Christian. And left, taking the two boys with her. You can feel for her, can't you? But she missed because he was truly transformed by the gospel of Jesus.
and became a gentle, loving, kind man and a really wonderful man who ultimately led his father to the Lord Jesus Christ before he died but who never was able to regain his marriage. Well, what do you do if your spouse will not leave you because you're a Christian? Is that it, it's the real problems Paul is dealing with here, you see. And so he talks of them that you don't hold on to them. We then go on to the issue of contentment, as I said to you in verses 17 to 24 of this chapter. And then on to the marriage of virgins and the comparison of living single as opposed to living married in the light of the kingdom and in the present problems of this world. So what is the answer to Christians about divorce and remarriage? Well, the answer, I think, is fairly simple from this passage. Don't get divorced. That's the answer. That's the answer to Christians. And if you do, then stay single. That's the answer for Christians. But what about the situation where... Well, he's answered the situations where, and anything beyond that is Pharisaism, friends. Why are you asking? Because you want to find some chink in the logic here whereby you can find your way into acceptably doing what you want to do. Divorce is not the Christian solution. It's the world's solution. I don't get on with you, get lost. I'll find someone I do get on with. I'm so glad God didn't have that attitude to me. I'm so glad he didn't have it to you. No, no. We are to be like Christ and lay down our life for our enemies. If we lay down our life for our enemies, how much more for our spouse? And even if she is our enemy, marriage is pretty bad at that level, isn't it? I'm still to lay down my life for her. Reconciliation, that's our mainstream. That, that's, that's what we're on about. Killing people is not what we're on about. Divorce is killing. It's violent. That's what Malachi 2 is talking about. I can't stand you in my life. I'm not allowed to kill you, so I will obliterate you. You're just no longer here in my life. You don't exist anymore. I get rid of you and I'll find somebody else. That is never the Christian way. But fundamentally anti-Christian as an approach. However, there are these incredibly difficult situations that a mission church will be involved in, that Paul has outlined for us in this passage. But it's also the question of the loopholes is the point at which Jesus is speaking. For Jesus doesn't give us a section on marriage and divorce and remarriage. He gives us sections on Pharisees playing with the law to excuse what is the inexcusable. But most people don't take Jesus in his right context and they look for rules and regulations out of his discussion with the Pharisees and they often ignore Paul in his teaching on the subject in 1 Corinthians 7. What's Jesus teaching about? 
well, generally Luke 16, Matthew 5, as well as when he's tested in Mark 10 and Matthew 19, he refuses to water down the law and its requirements on us. Notice Matthew 19 may be a test to decide whether he supports Rabbi Shammai or Rabbi Hillel, but there's no reference to them. But when you look at Matthew 19 verse 1, you'll see there that it starts off, Now, when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee, entered the region of the Jordan, uh, of Judea, beyond the Jordan, and large crowds followed him there and he healed them. And then Pharisees came up to him and tested him. Notice they're not asking a genuine question. They're trying to trick him. They're trying to test him. And they asked the question about divorce. Jesus has just moved into the territory of John the Baptist. John the Baptist was imprisoned and then executed by King Herod because John the Baptist had the audacity to say that Herod should not have divorced and remarried the way he did. Jesus now walks into John's territory and the Pharisees who are seeking to kill Jesus ask him to come out and make the same statement that John the Baptist was making in the same place to have him reported to Herod. You don't need to involve Hillel, Shammai or any other rabbi to understand the context of what is happening here. In all these occasions, remember Jesus didn't teach as the scribes taught, but he taught with authority. He didn't look for loopholes, but took people back to God's principles of marriage in Genesis. He refuses to misread Deuteronomy 24, as the scribes did. They took it as a command to divorce, but if you read Deuteronomy 24, nowhere are you commanded divorce. In fact, the section is really about forbidding remarriage after the first wife has been defiled. The first wife has been defiled by you. And not only did he take them back to Genesis, he also took his disciples on to the questions of eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom that I mentioned to you last night. For Jesus and for Paul, marriage and sex isn't the be-all and end-all that we make it out to be. If you're in a mess, fix it up that you may live in holiness. But don't pretend to use the law to justify your sinfulness. You can be adulterous, even breaking the seventh commandment by your flirtatious actions, even by your legal divorce. You can be legally immoral. For your, in your marriage, it's not doing what God is laying upon you to do. God has made you one and you should not, nobody should, try to separate what God has united. So I'm very wary of the modern cleverness that can show somehow that what the world is doing in easy divorce and remarriage could possibly be what Jesus taught his disciples. Now, I am happy, my dear Lord and Master, to quit at this point and introduce the end of this talk at the beginning of the next. Or I am happy to finish this talk in the next five minutes, depending on how you wish to go. <laughs> All eyes look upon you, O Christopher. 
Keep going? Okay. It's his fault. <laughs> point four is defining the reality of the disillusion by disillusion, and point five is marriage and divorce in the church life, and there we've, we've, we've broken the back of it now. The pointy part of the discussion is the remarriage of divorcees. It's not simply that people disagree about this, but in the disagreement we discover how differently we approach the very concept of marriage. There are, for example, three ways commonly of understanding marriage that are in Christian circles amongst us. One, the covenantal view, that is marriage is a contract of promises. Two, the ontological view, that is in marriage two become one, you are one. Three, the sacramental view, that is in your marriage you're symbolizing the relationship in heaven. All three are true. Which one is the one? I don't think so. Each has different implications on the question of divorce and remarriage. The ontological one can't be right. They want to say, well, that it's indissoluble. The two are one, they cannot be separated. But if they cannot be separated, why did God say, do not separate them? If it can't happen, there's no reason to give the command. It would be quite unnecessary. It's more than a covenant. There is a covenant view. Malachi chapter 2 speaks about marriage by covenant. For there's a reality that the covenant represents, articulates. I mean, there's nowhere in the Bible is the covenant actually described. There's no wedding in the Bible. You won't find a wedding service in the Bible. But yet there is that kind of promises. But it's more than a covenant. It's a reality, especially when it comes to children. That's why they're so hurt by divorce. Because you say, well, look, I've made my promises, she's made her promises, and now we're not going to live out our promises. But the trouble with the child is, the child is the child of the promises. The child is more than just promises. When you tear apart your relationship, your contract with your spouse, you tear apart your child. Because your child is the outcome of that relationship. It's more than just promises. There's a reality that is involved here. And it's not just a sacrament. It goes before the church. It's part of creation. Non-Christians are genuinely married. Though it does symbolise and point to something greater. I want to suggest to you a slightly more creation view of understanding. That is, it's part of God's creation whereby he makes a man and a woman into one reproductive unit that we undertake by covenant. But the meaning of Australian divorce has now been defined, marriage rather, has now been defined by divorce. And that is essentially happening across the Western world. You see, we go into church and we promise that I will live for you, with you, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and health, until death does it, and I will not with anybody else. I make all these huge promises. But in reality, what I am genuinely promising in Australia is, I will live with you as my wife until 12 months after I've stopped living with you as my wife, and then I'll live with somebody else. So although I say, for better, for worse, for richer, although I say, till death us do part, that's a load of nonsense. That's just air. That's romantic. That's Cahill Gibran. 
you know, it's stupid. Doesn't say you haven't got Gibran, the prophet. It's just nonsense. When people don't use the Bible, they use Cahill Gibran in parks in Australia, and it's just gobbledygook. And, and gobbledygook sounds wonderful, sounds beautiful, but it's totally and utterly meaningless. Well, I'm sorry, the Christian wedding is now meaningless too because of the divorce laws. You can't define marriage from divorce. For essential to marriage is no divorce. <laughs> No separation. For essential to marriage is lifelong unity till death us do part. So we have to understand marriage from creation. God uniting a man and a woman into a sexually reproductive unit that we enter into by covenant faithfulness. So what of marriage and divorce in church life? Well, today the church, the culture of church attendance, church weddings has all changed. And we're concerned not with the community as much as with church itself. This brings us to different attitudes. For while we should encourage the community to marry and fix up the mess of their lives, we really need to hope and expect something better for church members. And so secondly, marriage is public event. Divorce may be private, but it's a public event. And the Christian church should be involved in our weddings, even if they are contracted and a registry officer should take them to church to pray for them publicly. But the private nature of divorce needs to be addressed, for it's a blot on the name of Christ that people can't love each other and be faithful to their promises. How can I be Christian and not loving and not faithful? And so we need to be more open in our church about the struggles we have within our marriages. And we need to be open about it long, long, long before we're reaching the separation state. Nearly every time people come to me in divorce separation mode, it's because they didn't come a year before when they were having problems. But our culture, our church culture is we Christians don't have problems living together, which is nonsense because we're sinners, aren't we? Of course we have problems living together. There's no perfect husband in this room except for me. And there's no... <laughs> of course we have problems. And we need to work on our problems with each other. Our message is not one of rules and regulations, but of repentance and reconciliation, of grace and forgiveness and acceptance and mercy. And these must be at the forefront of our concern for broken marriages rather than more laws and regulations about remarriage. The evidence is that divorce, unless the marriage is physically violent, is bad for children on almost every measure, is bad economically for women, irrespective of how big the divorce settlement is, is an unhappier way of proceeding than sticking in an unhappy marriage. Investigations of people 15 years after marriage counselling, those who have stuck in the unhappy marriage are happier than those who divorced. And it leads to greater instability in future marriages, both your own and your children. Paul's advice for widows is to remain single, because blending families is so difficult a task, even for widows, let alone for children of divorce. Finally, we must accept God's sovereignty over our lives and ministries. It's an open, an option for us Christians that non-Christians just don't have. It may not be my choice to be a eunuch, 
But if it's God's choice for my life, then I should learn to be content with it. Not that we always have to stay as slaves or uncircumcised. We can choose if opportunity arises to change, but we don't automatically look to change. If our marriage fails, especially because of our spouse's unfaithfulness to the word and their word, we must not, as a first step, think of divorce in order to remarry. God has united us to our spouse and our concern should be for our spouse's salvation, for repentance and for reconciliation with them as long as that is in any way humanly possible. Well now, let me pray for a moment and then Christopher will tell us where we're going and what we're doing. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for marriage and we thank you for the privilege you give to us of being able to live as one with husband, with wife, for the privilege of giving us someone to love as Christ loved the church and someone to submit to as the church submits to her Lord. We do pray, Father, that you would help us in our marriages to be thoughtful of each other and to be caring and providing for each other that we may be united in heart and mind, in body and in life and that our children may be given a safe and secure environment in which to grow in the love that we have for one another and that we may see our children and our children's children. We pray, Father, for those of us who are struggling, who have come from a life of sexual immorality and whose complexities of life have given them such difficulties. We do pray that you give them wisdom in how to sort out the mess of life, to do that which is now right as your people. We pray, Father, that you would help our pastors and our congregations to be an encouragement and help to such people. We pray, Father, for those of us, members of our church and members of your church who, who are struggling in relationship, Father, help us to find help not to be too embarrassed or ashamed, but to seek help when it is needed and when it can be given, that we may serve our partner in love and kindness and not pull away from them and make things more unstable and difficult for our children. We pray, Father, for our community, which has so profoundly turned its back now upon you and your way and is creating a society full of instability, of hurt people and lonely people, of troubled youth and of anxious children. And we do pray, Father, for such outpouring of your spirit that the gospel word may change and transform our society and the hurts and pains that they are going through may be used of you to bring them to yourself. And so we pray for these different things, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.